in your Bible, make your way to Nehemiah chapter 6. We start in chapter 6 today. We finish chapter 6 next week, April 2nd. Jason is going to preach on chapter 7. And then on the 9th of April is Easter. And we'll continue in Nehemiah chapter 8 and see some really neat connections there. Uh, but before we get into chapter 6, let me just kind of review quickly last week. Last week, if you weren't with us, or even if you were, um, we saw how God blesses people with the gift of repentance. Specifically in Nehemiah 5, how it played out in the lives of God's people in Jerusalem. They were told and they understood what we're doing is wrong. So that was a change of their mind. And then they took the necessary steps to make it right. That was a change in their actions. And and we mentioned Zacchaeus, we mentioned David and Nathan, and we said that that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And this kind of change is always the inevitable result of submitting yourself to the authority of the great and awesome king that Nehemiah describes regularly. We also notice Nehemiah's generosity and his sacrifice for his brothers and his sisters, which is also motivated out of a healthy and right fear of the Lord. And so you can be assured, we talked about this last week, that when you work as unto the Lord in this way, it's never forgotten, it's never overlooked, God always sees. And so in the second half of chapter 6 that we'll talk about next week, we're going to see the end not the end of the book, but we're going to see the end of the wall. Okay, so this is exciting. It's an exciting time in Jerusalem. The wall project will be complete. And it's kind of quick and uh, surprising how fast it happens. And we'll talk about that next week. But at the beginning of the chapter, the wall's not yet finished. And the persecution is not yet let up. Not that it does when the wall is finished, but... Even still, the enemies of God see that their window of opportunity for causing havoc, for stop, possibly stopping this project is closing. That window is closing. And so they kind of desperately try to, as, as Jason put it, to come up with a plot to murder Nehemiah. So let's read chapter six. We'll read the first 14 verses and then ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word. Nehemiah 6, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. 
And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let's take counsel together. Verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we can't help but see the pattern of talking about fear in the book of Nehemiah and how there's a wrong fear and a right fear. And Nehemiah has helped, by the inspiration of your spirit, helped us understand the right kind of fear of the Lord. But he's also helping us understand the wrong kind of fear, how we should not be afraid of these kinds of threats. And thank you for explaining why in, in these texts, Lord. Help us to have confidence when we're doing your work that you've called us to, that we don't have to be afraid, that we don't have to apologize, that we don't have to drop our hands from the work, but instead we continue pressing forward by your grace and for your glory. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts as your people today to press on, to persevere, because persecution is inevitable, so we must press on. And we do so by faith in Jesus. And so it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Can you notice uh, in, in these verses the desperate attempts here by the enemies, they're, they're pulling out every trick in the book, if you will. As Jason said, they've, they've already tried intimidation, threats, um, spreading lies, those sorts of things. And now they're just trying to end Nehemiah's life. They're trying to stop the work that way. And, and so I hope you can see the p really pathetic nature of these attempts. That's kind of how I think Nehemiah sees it. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But it proves a point that's still relevant today. It's where the title of our message comes from today. It's just this. Perseverance in the Christian life is necessary. Brothers and sisters, perseverance is needed. Even now. Whether you're 93 or whether you're 13 in the Lord, you must persevere. You must continue to press on. Now, I would guess that if, if I asked, um, hey, how many of you guys have ever felt very close to the Lord? A lot of hands would go up. And that's good. 
Um, maybe this was a season where you experienced a very uh, a peace or a closeness to God, maybe some protection, maybe just like a lightness of spirit evidenced by real joy in your life. Um, maybe you've noticed immediately following those really awesome experiences, really difficult experiences follow closely behind, right? Uh, we might say that the Christian life has an ebb and a flow to it. And I think that that's true. And sometimes it can seem like we go, we go over these mountaintops of delight where we're very close to the Lord. But then we also go through these valleys of despair where the Lord seems very far away. If you feel in those, either one of those, I'd encourage you, look to the book of Psalms. It's a great, uh, it's a great text of understanding both of those highs and lows from the authors there. I think, too, if we consider uh, the Apostle Paul in this, it's likely that he completed writing the book of Romans while he was in Corinth. And Romans is one of the most important letters that's ever gone through the mail system in the world. I I don't even know if there was a mail system, but delivered, it was one of the most important letters that we have access to. And he finishes this book, and I imagine that he, he does so with exhaustion, Um, but also a mix of elation with that. And he intends, we find out in in the book of Acts, he intends to continue traveling to different cities to preach the gospel, to establish churches. And then he finds out in Acts chapter 20 that there's a plot against him. Uh, It's not really clear if it's a plot against his life like it is in Nehemiah or if it's just a plot to ruin his reputation. He doesn't really specify but there's a plot there, and it would be extremely inc- discouraging nonetheless. And so Paul is, is right at the, the end of writing this great letter that under the inspiration of the Lord, he maybe not had seen how great and important it would be at that point. But he, he's, he's got this, this great high mountaintop experience. Thank you, Lord, for using me to send this letter. And then all of a sudden, now he's got people wanting to either end his life or destroy his reputation. But he goes on just a few verses later in Acts 20. You can see this in verse 24. He says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I don't count my life as anything. As long as I can persevere to see the completion of whatever it is the Lord has for me to do. Perseverance was needed for Paul. And by God's grace, he would persevere. I think too of another example. I think of Jesus. I think of the story of him with Lazarus, his friend. You guys probably remember the story. His friend Lazarus had died and really Lazarus's family was kind of blaming Jesus. They said, if you'd have gotten here quicker, this wouldn't have happened. So Jesus shows up on the scene, kind of being blamed for this. He sees their sadness. He's affected by it. He also sees the disbelief of the people there in Jerusalem. And you would you would think that what he was about to do would have a great effect on people. Because you know the story. He gets there and he sees Lazarus has been dead for days. He goes up, he says, roll the stone away, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And this this guy who's been dead for days comes walking out of the tomb. 
And you would think that ha- that would have an incredible effect, a positive effect on everybody watching. But guess what? It didn't. John chapter 11 that records this explains, it says, from that day on, Pharisees and those who opposed Jesus made plans to put him to death. So immediately following this, this watershed moment, this super important moment, certainly in the life of Lazarus, Lazarus and his family, you see plots of evil. And so you've got this mountaintop of delight and this valley of despair, and it comes right after the other. Paul worked hard at writing this letter, at loving the churches, but his work wasn't yet complete. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, but at that point in the story, his his work wasn't finished. The people of God in Nehemiah were going to complete the wall soon. That's coming in just a few short days and weeks. This was wonderful. Certainly, they were going to be excited about this. We'll see how they, they kind of christened it and celebrated that. But it didn't mean that their work would be completely done. They might finish the wall. Brothers and sisters, you might finish the ministry that God has called you to, but your work might not yet be done until God calls you home. Look at verses 2, 1 and 2 of Nehemiah chapter 6. These, these verses prove that perseverance was going to be needed for the people of God. But before we get to that, I think verse 1 contains some really exciting news too. The wall was being built. The progress hadn't stopped. There weren't any breaches in it anymore. That's what uh, Nehemiah says. That just means that it maybe hadn't been built all the way up, but there weren't holes in the wall yet anymore. Now, the gates, the doors and the gates, those needed to be added still. So it wasn't completely secure. The wall wasn't totally finished But the end of the project was really near. This was significant news. Word of it, obviously, had reached Israel's enemies, right? Sanballat, the typical typical enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, all of these guys are listed here as being involved in this plot against Nehemiah. They knew that once everything was set back right, once the city was fortified, back the way that it should be, the only way that they were going to be able to regain control over the people there was just a full-on siege. And they didn't want to do that because that was hard. And because Nehemiah had kind of the blessing of the king of Persia still at this point. So this is a crucial moment for Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem to keep Israel, to keep Jerusalem under their control. And so you heard the plan. It's simple. It's not complicated. Let's lure Nehemiah out into unfamiliar territory, and let's kill him. That was it. And so they send this word to him, and they say, hey, come out and meet together. They say that in verse 2. Let's meet together here at this place, and we will talk about what's going on in your city. But God gave Nehemiah eyes to see through that plan. Look how he answers in verse 3. He says, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, this is a really significant statement, too. I want to just camp here for, for a minute. I don't want us to miss this. Do you remember, and I want, to, I want a kid to answer this, so kids procures up. What was Nehemiah's position before he became governor of Jerusalem? Raise your hand. Any kid, remember, what was, uh, yeah, Simeon. He was a cupbearer to who? 
to the king. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Very good, Simeon. Cupbearer to the king was maybe not a coveted position, but for a Jew to occupy that position was a pretty big deal. He was trusted by the king. He probably had some kind of authority in the kingdom. He had nearness to the king. He had the ear of the king, if you will, over certain things. What he was doing was important work. He was, he was keeping the king alive, right? But Nehemiah, interestingly, saw his involvement with the rebuilding project in Jerusalem as even a greater work than the work before the king. He calls it a great work, in fact. He left what he was doing in, in, in the city of Persia, the great city of Persia, to go to this broken down town in a podunk city to build a wall. And he says that that is a better work, a greater work than what he was doing before. Um, I, I just point this out to reaffirm something that really we've already talked about along the way here in Nehemiah, but it's this. What Christians do is often misunderstood by the world. Okay, we talked about this several weeks ago. I won't go into all of that. But just to say that the world would have looked at these two positions, right? Cupbearer to the king and a governor of a, of a, of a city out in the sticks that nobody cares about as, as a terrible job replacement. No way is that an upgrade. No way is rebuilding the walls more important than what he was doing with the king, they would have said he left the great work behind. But Nehemiah says no. The work of Jerusalem was a great work to Nehemiah because the name of the Lord was at stake. The work that Christians are called to do today might not appear all that great to some people. The ministry that God has called you to, whether that's a ministry here involved with the church, whether that's a minis- the ministry to your family, whether it's a ministry in missions or whatever it is that God has given you to do, the world looks at that and they might not think it's all that important. But it is. Because the name and glory of the Lord is at stake in what Christians do. I appreciate what commentator James Hamilton Jr. says. This is in your notes. You can read along with me. He says, God has called you to live out his glory by trusting him, walking with him in purity, and thanking him for what he gives you. That's the way that he has called all of us to live. Whether we're also called to do vocational ministry, or called to be a farmer plowing fields, or called to be an electrical engineer, or called to be a stay-at-home mom, changing diapers and teaching homeschool. The point isn't so much what we do, but much more how we do it and who we do it for. I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. He points something else that's helpful that's there in your notes. He says, putting rocks around a small town is not what makes Nehemiah's work great. A dedication to God's name, God's promises, and God's people is what makes Nehemiah's work great. Brothers and sisters, I might add, it's what makes your work great too. The Apostle Paul tells Christians that Whatever you do, he says, whether it's in word or deed, whatever it might be, do it all for what? The glory of God. With hearts of thankfulness, 
Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and do it for the glory of God. So if you're trusting God, if you're walking in proper fear of him, and if you're working hard in his name, you, brother and sister, are doing a great work. Understand that. This is how you've decided to live your life, as you should. Don't be surprised, though, when those who care nothing for the name or glory of the Lord try to pull you away from that good work. Just thinking about some application with this, um, who would pull you away from such a great work? Well, it could be a fairly harmless situation. It could be a friend trying to get you to do things that you know you shouldn't be doing. This could be someone beside your spouse trying to get you to spend time with them. It could be someone trying to pull you into a conversation to gossip. It could be any number of things, but maybe we need to start responding to them in those situations like Nehemiah responds to the enemies of God here. Could you imagine this? Someone is starting to gossip with you and you say, I'm sorry, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down to you. Uh, Why should I come down to you and stop the work? Now, maybe we shouldn't answer quite like that. But you understand the, the principle here. What we're doing as unto the Lord in seeking purity is a great work. Why should we go down to those trying to pull us away from that and stop the work? We shouldn't. Why should we leave the good work of honoring God with our speech by going down to gossip? Why should we leave the good work of honoring God in our marriages by flirting with unfaithfulness? Why should we leave the good work of honoring God in my studies by stealing the answers to a test? Do you see the point here? See the application here? We shouldn't leave that work that God has called us to because it's better than all of those other things that we're being pulled down towards. We have to be steadfast in our response to these kinds of situations. Look at verse 4. Nehemiah had to be steadfast. Why? He says, because they sent to me four times in this way. The enemy was persistent in trying to pull him away from what God was calling him to do. Actually, five times they try to pull him away. Let me ask you this question, and just to think through with me this morning. What does the enemy have to do right now at this point in history except cause chaos and tempt God's children into sin? What else is he going to do? He knows the end that's coming, just like we do as God's people. What else is he? Why should it surprise us? I don't think that this surprised Nehemiah. It certainly doesn't appear so by the text. Why would we think that victory in just one little battle would win the whole war? Now, don't misunderstand me. Praise God for every victory. Every resisting of sin, of temptation, saying no to that and yes to Jesus... Praise God for that victory. But brothers and sisters, as the title of our message today goes, perseverance will be needed in this. Just like it was for Nehemiah, just like it was for God's people. So don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in pursuing the Lord and saying no to sin time after time. Just remember, perseverance is needed. 
The enemy doesn't let up, so neither can we. Look at verse 5. This illustrates it perfectly. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So this was not a letter of truce, of surrender. This was a letter of deception and lies. And you can see, you can glance through verse 6 and 7. This letter accuses Nehemiah of wanting to be the king of Nehemiah and the Jews plotting against the king of Persia in a, in a rebellion. Uh, they even accuse Nehemiah of hiring prophets to go around saying Nehemiah is the new king. And they try to bait Nehemiah to meet with them again under the guise of, you can see at the end of their kind of open letter here, they say, well, just, just come out here and let's talk about it. Let's just discuss this together. Let's reason about it. Now, the truth is, what they're saying could have a semblance of truth. If you looked at it through a certain lens, you might think, wow, they're really getting these walls built fast. If they put their minds to something and they've got this God that keeps protecting them, maybe they would be a big force against other people. Maybe they are trying to plot against the king. So from a certain perspective, this might look like it's kind of true. They were rebuilding the walls. They were fortifying them. It could have been perceived as a threat to the king of Persia. But really, this is nothing less than a manipulative intimidation technique by the enemy. And guys, God gives Nehemiah the eyes to see through this too. Praise the Lord. He explains in verse 9 this understanding of their attempt. He says, it's just to frighten me, just to frighten the people, hoping that it would cause us to abandon finishing the walls, to drop our hands from the work, he says. He, he saw through it. He saw through the temptation and the lies of the enemy, the truth. And this is how he responds in verse 8. I, I like just his short and sweet response. He says, no such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them in your own mind. There's something hidden here that I, I want us to see. When these rumors about Nehemiah and God's people were put out there in this open letter, because this was an open letter, okay, this was, wasn't a secret message. This was proclaimed for all of the townspeople, for probably even the towns around Jerusalem. They were trying to stir up trouble and make them afraid. When they were put out, did Nehemiah systematically go around to other towns or to other people and say, look, you might have heard this rumor. I want you to know it's not true. Did he do that? He didn't. He didn't go and try to explain to a bunch of people and try to track them down and say, well, here's my side of the story. He doesn't do any of that. He saw just right through these things and he simply denied it as having any truth of all. He says, basically, you're making this up. I don't have time for this. You're making, this is all in your own head. Nehemiah just rejects the false interpretation of the work that they're doing. And he just goes right on doing what God calls him to. He doesn't entertain these rumors at all. He just establishes truth. What you're saying is wrong. You're, it's just exists in your own mind. It's not true at all. And then he goes about his business. My question is in reflection of this, would we do the same kind of thing? If there's a rumor that started about us, 
about our church, about Christians? Are we going to go try to track down everybody that might have been affected by this? Or are we just going to simply say, here's the truth. I love you, but here's the truth. We're moving on. There may come a time when that happens. It may have happened to you. It has happened to this church. It happens to Christianity on a day in and day out basis. People come up with all kinds of reasons why the people of God aren't right. Being accused of saying or doing things that are just downright lies. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to respond in any other way other than what Nehemiah responds in. We don't have to give our full list of reasons, our side of the story, any of those things. We certainly shouldn't exchange mudslinging for mudslinging, right? Instead, just see through this stuff for what it really is. This is just a manipulatory intimidation tactic of the enemy. That's all that it is. Respond in faith. Respond speaking the truth in love and refuse to participate in the evil deeds of the world. Don't exchange lies for lies or untruth for untruth. Instead, I would say if the church is going to be persistent in anything, let's be persistent in truth and let's be persistent in love. That's what we want to make our, if we want to say battle cry, our theme is let's be persistent. Let's persevere in truth and in love. And we have to persevere. We have to be persistent because persecution is inevitable. Jesus says this. Paul says this. It's coming. It's here in some ways. How will we respond? Look at verse 9. Nehemiah sees through Sanballat's manipulation and he prays that God would strengthen his hands for what he was calling Nehemiah to finish up. And he needed that strength to persevere because the enemy hadn't given up either. We see him stoop in verses 10 to 14. They stoop down to an all-time new low, at least in the story so far. Shemaiah apparently was someone who was regarded as some kind of a prophet among the people there. And there was a covert operation put in place to try to scare Nehemiah into hiding somewhere Nehemiah shouldn't go. And that was the temple. He says, they're going to kill you tonight, so let's let's just go to the temple and we'll lock you in there and you'll be safe. Now, if Nehemiah is approaching the situation from an earthly, worldly, human, fleshly perspective, he might be tempted to do this with them, right? He might be tempted to say, wow, God has called me to a great work. I can't die now. Maybe I should go and save myself. But how does Nehemiah respond? He says, no, how can I do this? How can a man such as I be afraid? How can a man such as I go into the temple and live? Now, why? how did he know this was a setup? How did Nehemiah know it? How, how did he know that this man was not actually a prophet sent by God? Do you have any ideas? Think about it. He, he knew it was a setup. How? I think the answer is really simple. We talked about this the very second week at the beginning of chapter one, when we started talking about Nehemiah, and it's this. Nehemiah knew scripture. Nehemiah knew the word of God. He knew that According to the law, only priests were called to go into the temple. 
and even as such, just at particular times. And that's why he answered in the way that he did. He said, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? He knew he wasn't supposed to go in there. He wasn't called by God to be a priest and to go in and do those things. He says, I'm not going to go in. I won't go in there. He also knew that God had called him to be brave, to encourage his brothers and sisters in the same way. Remember, he's already done this. He says, guys, don't be afraid of them. When they started attacking or threatening to attack, he says, don't be afraid. We have a great and awesome God. Don't be afraid. He says, should such a man as I run away? I think what he means here is, is he's saying, you know, his audience with the king, the provisions that the king gave them to do the work that they were doing, everything else that's happened so far had the hand of God on it. And it was clear to him and the people. So if he cowered now in fear, surely that would affect the people around him, the people that he was called to lead. He knew that he was called to endure. So here's a concrete way to know, well, is this right or wrong? Because he was gauging that here. Should I go in the temple and try to save my life or should I not? Should I trust the Lord? Here's a way that you can gauge right or wrong. It's very simple and it's this. If the Bible says don't do it, it's wrong. I realize that's maybe an oversimplification, but maybe it's not. Maybe I'll I'll say it another way. God won't call you to do anything that his word forbids. Okay, this is kids at school in your studies. You know, God's never going to be okay with you cheating at school because he's already told you, you shall not lie, you shall not steal. Those are his commandments of the law. Married people, God won't ever be okay with you cheating on your spouse Because he's already said, don't commit adultery. God's not going to be okay with something that he's already said, don't do. A true prophet of the Lord wouldn't lead Nehemiah to disobey the law of God. And so you can look in verse 12. It says that Nehemiah knew he wasn't a true prophet and that God had not sent him because of this. Because his enemies had hired him. This wasn't a word from God to try to save Nehemiah's life legitimately. This was a word from the enemy under the disguise of a word from God. But again, God gave Nehemiah eyes to see through the deception that the intent was to strike fear into his heart. You can see this in verse 13. To strike fear into his heart and to give him a bad name in order to taunt him. See, this was Jerusalem was God's city. This is God's city. The temple is where God's spirit would dwell among his people in that day. But all of that means very little if the leaders of God's people start acting like God isn't there. Like God doesn't matter. Like his law isn't true. If God is going to continue to dwell there among them, they can't succumb to fear and bow to sin in the process. Nehemiah says this would be a sin if he were to do this. They have to conduct themselves according to God's instructions. The whole operation is undermined if Christians don't practice what they preach. This is a major criticism of churches all over the world. Hypocrisy. Do, do we practice what we preach? 
Nehemiah is practicing what he preached. He's not being afraid. He's listening to the Lord. He's following his law, the Lord's law. And by grace, Nehemiah saw through the deceit with eyes of faith. And in doing so, verse 14 says that he commits his cause to the Lord. And he asks God, he says, to remember. Now, at the end of chapter 5, Nehemiah asked God to remember everything good that he had done for the people. You can look back there. Uh, again, he didn't ask for a statue. that He wasn't trying to brag or anything like that. He just simply asked God to remember because he believed that God is fair and just. So at the end of chapter 5, he says, God, remember the good that I've done for these people. But now he's asking God to remember something different. He says in verse 14, he's asking God to remember. He wants the actions of these people to be remembered by God because he believed there would be a judgment. Nehemiah believed there would be a judgment. I think he believed what Paul would later go on to say in Romans 2, 5 through 8, that God will render each according to what a person has done, whether they pursue righteousness, whether they pursue unrighteousness. So Nehemiah just wants justice for those who repent. He wants God to look on them favorably. He, can, he, he calls the, the people to do so. To repent and to turn back. Remember, that was the call last week. Chapter 1 even, he says the same. Nehemiah wants justice for them. Lord, remember us as we repent. But then also here in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, chapter 5, verse 13, and here in chapter 6, verse 14, he also wants justice for those who oppose God. He wants justice for those who oppose his people and his purposes. And so he prayed and he believed that God's righteous judgment would play out. And then he left it there. He just left it at the hand, in the hands of God. He says, God, remember all the good that I've done. And now, Lord, remember the evil that these people have done. And he believes that God can take care of it, that God can handle it. I wonder, do we believe the same way like Nehemiah does in this? Or do we see the injustices that are pro- pro- probably happening, cl- even close to home, and do we say, man, i got to do something about that? And in our zeal, we end up sinning. Or can we say, Lord, we trust you by faith to handle this? That you see and you remember right and wrong and that you are the judge. And maybe let's hit a little closer to home today. Do you believe that there will be a judgment like Nehemiah? The reality is that we don't know when that day might be. And yet, for the one who knows and loves God, it doesn't really matter when that day is. And I don't mean that to be flippant or uncaring in the least bit. What I mean is that it doesn't matter for people who know and love Jesus because their account has already been paid by grace through faith in Christ. The judgment that's coming, the justice that God has, is not for his people. Their debt has been paid. The debt of sin a Christian once owed has been paid for by Christ on the cross. There's a song we sing, um, It Is Well, I think the third verse says it's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. That's the reality for the Christian. But brothers and sisters in Christ, remember, 
perseverance is needed by faith because persecution is inevitable. And I think in some ways we're experiencing that as believers even today. And so what do we do? Do we try to work around through the system and fix everything that way? Well, there's a time for those sorts of efforts. But I think we need to copy the example of Nehemiah here and say, Lord, you see what's happening, good and bad. And so, Lord, we're going to trust you to remember and to judge accordingly. That you will dispense justice properly because God is just. And to keep it in that framework of, of payment, he will settle accounts. And so the question to think through is, how would that go for you if you were called before the king to account today? Would you be found wanting because all of your efforts are in your own righteousness and your own goodness? I hope not. I hope that instead you would put your hope and faith in Christ and be saved. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you'll always be found wanting. You'll always be found lacking. But in Christ, you have more than enough. Everything you need for life and godliness, both here and for eternity. And so our heart is for you to be saved today. So as we pray and then sing our final song of reflection together, I'd encourage you, if you want to talk more about that, come up. I'll be standing right here. Love to sit and talk with you, pray with you about what it would look like, what happens when our accounts are up to be settled and how you can be confident on that day because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, our confidence doesn't come because of our goodness. It comes because of your work on the cross, your sacrifice. You have paid the debt that we owe and could never pay. Thank you, Lord. And yet as we read earlier, at the start of our time together, Lord, um, we, have to, we have to go and we have to do what you've called us to do. We, we have to be sending and we have to be going and we have to be preaching. We have to be sharing. And so, Lord, I pray that we are. I pray that we confess these things with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and we're saved. This is not a complicated process, Lord. I pray that you would spur on belief and hope and faith today in those who need it. And Lord, for those who you are already yours, I pray that you would give perseverance. The days seem to be getting short, Lord, of your coming. And we look forward to that with joy and hope, but we also recognize that we need to persevere. And so I pray, as Paul puts it, that we would run the race, that we would walk worthy of our calling. And we do so for your namesake and your glory. In your name we pray.